Welcome to episode 13 of Make Me Watch It, the podcast series where you, the listener, tell me which of the several hundred movies I own but haven't watched yet I'm going to be watching next. This month, we're looking at the 1923 version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. It was released on September 6th, 1923. It was directed by Wallace Worsley, written by Pearly Poor Sheehan and Edward T. Lowe Jr., based on the Victor Hugo original, and stars Lon Chaney, Patsy Ruth Miller, Norman Carey, Kate Lester, Winifred Bryson, Nigel de Brulier, Brandon Hurst, Ernest Torrance, Tully Marshall, Harry Von Meter, and a number of others. It's a very large cast of characters. So this is one that I actually picked up as part of a Horror Classics 50 movie pack. So there's 50 movies in one box for $10. So they're all in the public domain. And anytime you're dealing with public domain films, the hit-to-miss ratio is not good, especially in large, cheap collections like this. I mean, yeah, there are gems like The General and Nosferatu, but then you also have movies like Manos, The Hands of Fate, and Santa Claus Conquers the Martians that only seem to be in public domain because the companies that made them are so bad at making movies they've gone bankrupt and can't actually renew the copyright. So the question then is, which category does The Hunchback of Notre Dame fall into? Well, this one is actually, it, it's a pretty good one. It was a universal film, but because it's 1923, it is in the public domain, because any film from 1923 or earlier is now public domain in the United States. I hadn't gotten around to watching it just because I've got no intrinsic interest in the Hunchback story. I've never read it, and this is the first time I've actually watched a film adaptation of it. I picked it up because I figured a box set like that for a guy who sometimes enjoys watching bad movies is not going to go too far wrong. Now, getting into the creators behind them, Wallace Worsley was a fairly prolific director in the silent era. He actually directed 29 films from 1918 to 1928, so averaging two or three a year, which is fairly prolific even in those days. Now, the films themselves, I'm going through the titles, and there's a few that I recognize, things like The Ace of Hearts and Voices in the City, both from 1921, also starred Lon Chaney Sr., We've got Grand Larceny. As far as IMDb is concerned, it's this film is what he's best known for, but he's also known for The Ace of Hearts, A Blind Bargain with Lon Chaney from 1922, and Grand Larceny, also from 1922. So this is definitely close to the heyday of his career. Poorly Poor Sheehan was a writer on 19 projects, ranging from 1916 to 1953 although her credits in 1940 and 1953 are because of adaptations of a story that she'd written earlier, specifically The Way of All Flesh, which was one of her 1927 films. Most of her work also seems to be in the silent era. She's best known for The Night Message, this film, The Lost City, and The Man Who Saw Tomorrow. Now, Edward T. Lowe Jr., was able to make a more successful transition to the sound era. Not everybody was able to. His writing credits begin in 1912 
and the last of his 129 writing credits is from 1947. He's best known for writing House of Dracula, The Vampire Bat, A Man's World, and Sherlock Holmes and the Secret Weapon, with Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce, who were also Sherlock Holmes and Watson on the radio show at the time. So he was pretty prolific and kept working until he was in his 60s, so a typical retirement age. Of all the people involved in making this film, Lon Chaney Sr., who plays Quasimodo the Hunchback, has got to be the best known. He was known in Hollywood as the Man of a Thousand Faces because of his talent for makeup. He did his own makeup as Quasimodo in this film, and it actually holds up very well almost a hundred years later. He was also known for makeup in most of his other movies, including The Unholy Three, the 1925 version of The Phantom of the Opera, and so forth. He had 162 acting credits in a career that spanned from 1912 to 1930 and only ended because of his death. He actually was going to be Dracula in the 1931 Dracula, and his death is the only thing that prevented it. Without that, he would have played the part instead of Bela Lugosi. He loved taking characters who would be misjudged by outward appearances and playing them, possibly because his parents were deaf mutes. So he not only grew up with a talent for pantomime, because that's how he had to communicate with his parents, but also because that's just the kind of characters that intrigued him. He loved demonstrating that the person on the inside may not be the same as the person on the outside. Much like Quasimodo here, who was initially manipulated into doing some rather nasty things in the start of this story, but by the end redeems himself and commits self-sacrifice to save the person who was kind to him. Now that person, Esmeralda, was played by Patsy Ruth Miller. She's got 78 acting credits to her name and also did survive the transition from silent to sound films, although the silent portion of her career is by far the most prolific. Of her 78 credits, she's only got nine credits that come after 1929, which is when sound became involved with live action films, and only two that come later than 1932. She was germane in Quebec in 1951, and the mother in Mother in 1978. Everything else prior to that is from 1931 or sooner. So she did have some success with sound films, but not as much as some other people did. Now, Norman Carey plays Phoebus to Chateaupour in this, 66 acting credits to his name, but again only one following 1931. Kate Lester, who played Madame de Condolatour, has 80 acting credits to her name, the most recent being 1925, but that's likely because of her death in October of 1924. So her last couple of projects were released posthumously. The other most prominent character is probably Jehan, played by Brandon Hurst. 132 acting credits to his name, also ending posthumously with a project in 1948 following his death in 47. Now, he is best known for the 1920 Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with John Barrymore, this film, The Man Who Laughs, another 
Victor Hugo adaptation from 1928, and Love from 1927. So it is the silent era that he's best known for. But he was working steadily, although largely in uncredited roles, as things like English announcer and cemetery gatekeeper. So not large projects and not big jobs, but still getting jobs right up until the, the time he passed. Now, as I said, I've got no previous exposure to the Hunchback story. I knew the basics and this added details. I can't say how accurately it was adapted. I was surprised at how little Quasimodo was actually in it. A lot of this really is Esmeralda's story. And it makes me wonder why it was named for the Hunchback. Is that because they shifted the focus for the film? Or is it just because they named it after a character who's not on the page as often as Esmeralda is? Because this is largely about Esmeralda and men lusting for her really more than loving her, given that it's often on site from the other side of the room or other side of a courtyard kind of thing. And, you know, her attempts to try and keep her own mind and make her own choices for her future when others are trying to kidnap her, force her into marriage and that sort of thing. So Quasimodo is in a position where he's initially manipulated into kidnapping her for Jihan, who wants her as his own, treating her again as an object, but because she's kind of Quasimodo and because of the kind of person Quasimodo is, he eventually realizes that Jihan, who had been the only person who he thought had shown him kindness, was really just using him. And he turns on Jihan to protect Esmeralda, ultimately giving his own life, as Esmeralda ends up with the man she wants to be with. So it is nice to see strong female characters in film as early as 1923. That is so unusual, not just for 1923, but for movies produced out of Hollywood in 1923, that it's probably a safe assumption that that strong female character is something that started in the source material, and when they adapted it to the film, they just didn't break that aspect of the story. But it was still very pleasant to see. Now, as for the overall production and quality, it is 1923, so the filmmaking arts were still being developed, and they were still learning how to do it, and had you know, restrictions on lighting levels and things that would actually work in the camera. But that said, a lot of that doesn't show. This would have been one of the best-produced movies of its era, by a considerable margin. The estimated... The budget to produce this is a little over $1 million. The eventual box office take was more like $3 million. So it was nicely profitable for the studios. And those are also $19.23, so we take into account inflation and things like that. It's done quite well. Now, it did win an honorary award for the musical score that was added to it in about 2001, it didn't win any awards in its day. Largely because movie awards were not really a thing in 1923. The first Academy Awards ceremony was still several years away. So as for the messages, morals, and meanings in the section of Shamelessly Stolen from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, there's largely don't judge a book by its cover, and there's a lot to be said about allowing women to make their own choices, because every evil act that comes out of this comes from someone who's trying to treat Esmeralda as an object rather than as a human being, and is trying to claim her as a possession. Now, I did leave part 
of the discussion that we usually do at the beginning until now, the why I own it but haven't watched it yet portion. I talked about why I own it in that box that I bought. And, you know, question is, why did I choose to do it now? Well, this year in Bureau 42, if you go to the text website, bureau42.com, rather than just listening through the podcasts, you'll see that we've got list challenges going. So reading challenges for a year are a fairly common thing. If you search for reading challenges, run it through Google, and the first three hits I found were three different pages that have compiled a hundred different reading lists each. Those are available left, right, and center. I couldn't find any for TV and movies or podcasts aside from a couple TV and movie that were anime-specific. So I decided to put some together. So the first viewing, listening, and reading challenges for Bureau 42 are available. There's 52 items each, so we're looking at averaging about one per week. And this film met one of the criteria for a silent era film on the movie viewing challenge. It's part of a 12-way tie for the third place priorities in the Make Me Watch It voting. So that section will cover the rest of this year. Some will apply to the viewing challenge, some won't. But if you're interested in participating in that, it's there on the right-hand side in the links section, the Bureau 42 list challenges. So that's about all we have to say about the Hunchback of Notre Dame. And we'll be back again on the 14th of next month. Thank you for listening.